Welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Is this distribution fair? Is it, is it fair, everyone? I, I want it to be fair. Well, we're going to get to how we can make that happen later on in this podcast. First, I need to, at great length, introduce our hosts because there are four of us today. There's me, Richard. Hello, everyone. Justin Dorfman. Hello. Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. Alyssa Wright. Hello, everyone. And then we have two guests today. We have Travis Oliphant and Russell Picruel. Both of them are coming from Open Teams in Austin. Travis is the CEO. Russell is the program manager. Russell is also the founder and director of Fair OSS, which we're going to talk a bit about today. And I'm really excited about that. Travis and Russell, how are you doing? Doing good. Thanks, Richard. Doing well. Great to be here, Richard. Can you tell me a bit about what Open Teams is? Because that's, I think, where we started with this. Yeah, I'll take that one. We'll let uh, Russell dive into Fair OSS. Open Teams is a marketplace for connecting open source service providers with the businesses that use open source. And it's really one of our goals is to help sustain open source, make it more easy for people who are, have a project, have something they're doing, build a business around that. We do all the work around building a business to help connect your open source activity with a company that needs it. Cool. How does that work exactly? Like, do you go to open source projects and say, you need contracts, here's how you get them or something? What do yep, you do? Pretty much. Oh, cool. We basically provide a, a lot of, uh, basically, essentially what I wished it existed when I was coming out of academia, having written NumPy and SciPy and not knowing a whole lot about business, knowing a whole lot about coding and software, but not knowing a whole lot about business. Open Teams provides the marketing, sales, admin, finance, accounting, business development, so that developer can focus on their team and providing great work, and we can worry about procurement and getting through legal hurdles at companies. So you wrote NumPy and SciPy as well, correct? Yes. Okay, yes. so it's not NumPy and, and Skippy. <laughs> I can finally well, put that to bed. Good to know. It is NumPy and SciPy, but I'm not, you know, especially now some people say NumPy. Skippy, I can't deal with that, but NumPy all the <laughs> Well, thank you so much for those two packages. They're really useful. When did you write them and when did you start Open Teams when you said you left academia? How long ago was that? It's what got me into open source. I was a graduate student at the Mayo Clinic wanting to process my data more easily. I was a MATLAB user, but was uncomfortable with a couple things. I like the fact that people had to buy it in order to do their work in science. I was a scientist and I also was unhappy with floating point, it was running out of memory. So I looked around, found Python, it was this young language at the time, but it was expressive, easy to use, but it was lacking a bunch of libraries. So as a grad student with nothing better to do except my PhD and maybe graduate, I decided to spend time instead writing packages and linking them to, to Python. That, became, that was multi-pack, that became SciPy in 2001. But along the way, I got really addicted to the open source ethos and community aspect of open source. You'd write a package, somebody on the internet would download it, they'd send you back feedback, and you know, we were connecting and creating a social network long before the social networks started. That was the early days of social networks. And it was addicting. That's the best way I can put it. And I, I loved it. I loved the interaction, global interaction, the fact we could share our work and build from each other. But I had kids and I didn't know how to pay for those kids without working. And so I was trying to figure out what to do. So ever since that time, that was 20 years ago. That was in 1998 I started that. That's 22 years ago now. I went to academia, was a professor for a while. During the way, as a professor, uh, that's how SciPy got started. As a professor, SciPy was being forked effectively. There was an array object called the American Python. And then the Hubble Space folks were needing a better array in order to do some of the use cases and features they needed. 
And they were, they'd written something called Numeray, and then new libraries were starting to be written on Numeray, and we had SciPy written on Numeric, and there was a fork in this fledgling scientific community in Python. So I basically didn't teach a class, and I wrote NumPy, and I thought it would take four months, took about eight months, then another year and a half to unify and fix all the bugs so it could be released. But it came out in 2007, really by 2006 it came out, 2007 it had been really adopted by everybody in the Python community and the unification had happened. So it's great. It was like a real jump start for the fledgling community and kind of was a big part of why Python became the dominant language for technical computing. I've been doing open source the whole time, loved it, but I was an academic and that whole desire to make sure we could get paid, I could have a job. I left academia in 2007, partly because I wrote NumPy instead of writing enough papers, according to my department. I was okay with that because I really wanted to try my hand at entrepreneurship. I really wanted to figure out how do we make companies work. And so I got really fascinated by the economics of open source and the economics generally. How do I do that? And that led me on a career of entrepreneurship. I left, went to Austin, came to Austin, part of a consulting company, learned to fundraise, did a lot of consulting with big banks and large companies, started Anaconda then with another colleague and and it was called Continuum Analytics. And we did service consulting as well as try to build products and learned a lot along the way, raised money from venture capitalists. Eventually, I left there. My co-founder is still there, but I decided to kind of really keep honing that question of how do we connect companies and communities? And that led to the foundation of Quansight. And Quansight has been my home, and I'm, I'm still CEO there, but I talk about open teams because it's just branched out of Quansight to generalize. So it's a long story, but there's lots of nuances along the way. And that's to say, I've been really focused on this question of how do we make money for people, how do people make money in open source for 20 years? And Open Teams is the latest incarnation. And FaroSS is my passion. So Open Teams is something I know we can do today. It's a business I've been running for 12 years and we're just expanding it. And we kind of know how to do that. And I want to basically make a thousand people, let's say 300, a thousand eventually. But I think I can personally help hundred groups build businesses around open source consulting businesses. That's what I've been doing. But FaroSS is a big idea about changing the market. And so I'm really glad we're going to talk about that today. Love to talk about open teams, but I want to, but FaroSS is really a, it's a world changing idea as well, and probably could have more impact, much more impact, but it's a little harder. Got to do some preparation, some groundwork, some laying the foundation. I met some of your team at, I think, OSCON. Oh, from okay. the, yeah, from open team. So I met David and I met Eunice oh, and, and you have a great yes. team. I'm very impressed with everybody. And what I really loved about talking to them is they are extremely well-intentioned. The whole business, the whole idea behind it is truly intended to help others. And I just absolutely love that and want to endorse that. I appreciate that. I do too. That's exactly what motivates me. I love it too. Thanks, Eric. I didn't realize we had a VIP here. So the NumPy, they have a foundation, right? So NumFocus. So when I started Continuum Analytics with Peter, we also gathered a bunch of other people together and started a nonprofit called NumFocus. So that could be a home for the, the fiscal sponsor. Because one of the things that was happening is I wasn't a fan of companies owning the code for the open source. I really wanted that to be kind of community owned and it was kind of de facto owned by one company. And so we started NumFocus to enable that. And then that's kind of got a life of its own, the PyDead ecosystem. So I've had a chance to be involved with a lot of different activities and I'm still excited about what NumFocus is doing. But that's right. So we founded NumFocus same time we founded Anaconda. Yeah, I mean, speaking of great teams, they're an amazing team as well. I worked with yeah. them on some in-kind sponsorships back in the day. Oh, and so cool. 
Yeah, they're very sharp. And when you started bringing up NumPy, I was like, wait a minute, NumFocus. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, glad, yeah. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, that, I love the guys, the folks over at NumFocus. Fortunately, I mean, what I've loved doing is sort of helping create activities, start activities, and then kind of back away and let other people jump and run it, right? It's sort of been a pattern, I guess, in my life. Like SciPy, I spent a lot of time in SciPy off the ground, working hard on it. Now, SciPy is led by several other, you know, hundreds of other contributors now. And there's people that really own that. And so I occasionally, you know, might show up and say something or, or talk about something or, or use it for sure. And NumPy is the same way. Then NumPy took a little longer, but eventually there's, there, now it's getting a lot of real serious contributors who are making a great package. So that's kind of continued. And that's why my life has led towards the sort of more of the, I'd like to be in maybe five, 10 years, just in the venture capital space and just be helping people start up companies, ideas, thoughts, and not, and I'm still active because I still have to have a job. I'm still working like everybody else. And so I have to figure out what I'm going to do. And Open Teams is that. Ferro SS, I'm really excited about where we're going to go with Ferro SS. It's the passion idea that, that the dots connected about two years ago. I want to hear Russell speak a bit. Can you tell us a bit yeah, about what Ferrosess is? Because you're now the person in charge of that ship. Although Travis has definitely been helpful with his huge amount of experience. And thank you so much, Travis, for talking about that. I've used a lot of your work. It's awesome to hear it from your mouth as it is. But Russell, what is Ferrosess and how does it work? Yeah, Ferrosess is a public benefit corporation. We're essentially trying to create an economic framework. We're calling it the Groundwater Program that does connect companies and communities like Travis said. Our tagline is kind of bringing equity to open source. And so one of the main ways in which this new sustainability model works is by me and my co-founder actually securing equity agreements with companies. And what that does is it essentially sets a value that companies are willing to put on their dependencies. And so we track that in tables and you can see that we kind of assign or get a picture of a value of an open source project. And I'll let Travis talk in the future about sort of the implications of that. But it's essentially a sustainability model where we can attach value. It is sort of also kind of a recognizable brand, similar to like fair trade for open source. So there is that. It's not a certification process. It's just more of a kind of principled group of like-minded people that are interested in open source sustainability. So over time, like, you know, you can imagine we secure these equity agreements, companies, I mean, you saw Anaconda with its dividend program. It's very similar to that, but we would sign those agreements and create these ledgers of which dependencies projects or companies are using, allocate a value there. We work with projects to do the same thing all the way down the dependency tree. So you have this sort of chain of ledgers with commitments from companies. Yeah. And then... We hope to kind of broaden the application of this to unlock investor capital, but I want Travis to kind of talk about that piece. He's got a vision there. Before we dive into that, I was wondering if you could speak to how you assess the impact of the dependencies. We've all been really interested in trying to surface, you know, an entire open source ecosystem and providing value for all the pieces. And so interested even like technically, how do you first see the dependencies, and then how do you assign that value? Yeah, absolutely. Alyssa, you work for Open Collective, right? Yeah, we actually leverage back your stack as a starting point. So there are top-level dependencies for a company. We'll start there. 
and we'll basically have the commitment to the equity commitment that we get from companies is essentially negotiated. This is sort of a beginnings of a market-based approach for pricing an open source project. So the more data we collect, the more commitments we secure, the more accurately a project's value is reflected. So in terms of dependencies, yeah, we'll start with something like back your stack. And then we have an allocation from a company that's sort of a percentage of their dependency. So let's say, for example, NumPy gets 20% or whatever. So that's kind of how we do it for the aggregate of companies for at least the moment right now. But we're open to community input. There's a lot of people working on coverage tools and dependency scanning, and we want to leverage that. We don't want to recreate that. One of the problems that I've always found with trying to fund open source is that it is very difficult to solve the problem on more of a grand scale. And it seems like what you've done so far is approach it on a very individual basis. One of the talks I gave, I I referenced that famous story where a boy walks on the beach and throws starfish back into the ocean. And he's asked why he's doing it. It won't make a difference because there's tens of thousands. And he said it made a difference for that one. But the next slide in my talk shows all of the dead starfish laying on the beach that are like just left there. So I suppose it probably is frustrating for the both of you to to kind of see the magnitude of the problem and the ability to make the impact that you want. What are your views on going from a, I can help this starfish to, I can help all the starfish on the beach? I'd love to address that a little bit, if you don't mind. So one of the key pieces that we recognize is there's actually a data gap. There's information gap. Like the information that's not there is that the projects themselves need to certify what their dependency is. Like we have requirements text, we have dependency chains. You can see kind of a linear flow, but we don't have as any weighting to that. And so we feel like it's the project's responsibility to actually create that. Now, FairSS is going to create files that essentially say, okay, NumPy, what's its dependency chain? Oh, it's 10, 20% dependent on Python. It's also 20% dependent on libc, 2% dependent on libc. Now, what is that right percentage? It's a good question. FairSS will use automatic tools, coverage tools, code tools to come up with a pattern. But the whole goal of that is not to be the definitive answer, but to encourage projects to actually tell us what they think the right answer is. So it's an important aspect of governance, actually. Project governance, one important aspect of it that we're trying to promote and encourage people to do is to build that dependency table of their, of their dependencies. Who's contributed to this? What projects are contributing to your work? And to record it, keep track of it. So part of it is actually an influence, You know, put a pattern, put an example and get people to follow that example. And we believe that if we can tie some positive outcome, like, hey, if you do this, your project is now investable. Your project can now receive funds from investors, for example. That'll help, right? You know, incentives are everything. The way you get all the starfish back in the ocean is to announce some kind of mechanism to bring everybody to the beach to throw starfish in. You scale by aligning incentives and creating some reason. So we feel like that's really what we're trying to do with FairOSS is establish a pattern, concept that works, try it out, do some experimentation, see what works. But really the projects have to participate. Are projects aware of their dependencies? And this might be a simple question. They're all aware of their dependencies from again, a Euclidean space. Apologies for the reference, but you know, it's like they, they see a flat space and there's mm-hmm. a list somewhere. Like to build a project, you got to know what you're dependent on. And so you have a flat dependency list somewhere. But what we want to do is add effectively a second column to that data set that has the percentage dependency. We're going to be using something called millibips. That's a thousandth of a basis point. 
So there's 10 million millibips in 100%. And so if a project just puts a table of, okay, how many millibips is that project dependency worth for each of your project? That's a file that will change over time because your project may start a certain way. And even if your project no longer depends on that, but it did, we feel it should stay in your millibips table. It should stay there because it was an important part of your growth. And so keeping that, there's some work there to do. I mean, this is why it's still early stages and we're building a groundwork for something later. But I could see a world where, you know, there's a project version, the number of the millibips, maybe there's a couple of entries, but just make a table like that and keep track of it. And that's one of the responsibilities that FaroSS is going to take on that will have a table and will want the other the projects to keep track of it. There's 5 million or more growing, but it's a big problem, but it's not a insurmountable problem. Having worked in the finance industry and walked with big investment banks we're tracking massive amounts of contracts, this is completely solvable. It just needs to be done. It's rare we have hope on this podcast <laughs> a lot of the times we're just i can't sustain things i know i can't sustain things either but to hear like yeah it's a it's a hard problem but we can take that is really reassuring in some way i have a question around the dependency graphs that you're making you say you have you know the top level dependencies are fine and then you have another column which is the percentage but there's two things that kind of confuse me there one of them is how do you go down the stack and look yeah. all the way at the base and then the other question i have is i could write a script that's useful for my company and I use it once every three months, but I could also write my website that gets thousands of hits, but how do you judge the usefulness of what dependencies really matter for what code matters for the business proposition? That's an open question to me, right? Do you have any answers for either of those? Well, just from my perspective, I think it may still remain an open question. There's a huge sort of problem that FaroSS is attempting to at least get involved with and even funding open source has a whole host of complications. So the other side, just mapping the dependencies, and there's companies out there trying to solve that. And right now, at least what FaroSS is trying to do is leverage that existing work and focus our efforts on being able to actually go out and, cool. and secure those equity agreements. So, so to answer your question directly, we still also need to solve that problem. <laughs> Which is totally okay. Has anyone else done equity stuff for open source maintainers? A little bit. You've seen, so that was the revelation. The idea was, hey, wait a minute. So I'll give you the backstory a little bit. I was creating Quonsite, you know, looking for what are the ways that have worked to connect money to open source developers. And I've been able to hire people to build open source over the past 13 years since I've been in industry. Around NumPy, around SciPy, mostly around new projects like Numba and Dask, uh, Bokeh, Jupyter Lab. We actually had a lot of success in Anaconda in the community innovation team. And I wanted to replicate that. Now we built the Quonsite Labs. We're replicating that. We were able to fund people to do that a particular way. But I was thinking, how do we go bigger? Kind of the problem of this. I know this works, but how do we do something bigger? And then I realized that we wanted to start companies. There's a lot of venture capital flowing to open source right now, but it's a very particular way. And so in yeah. thinking about how do we start those companies, I said, well, I think I'm going to have to start a venture fund. Right. So I remember the day I was like, okay, I got to start a venture fund. I really want to start a venture fund. Oh, okay. That's a lot of hassle. What am I going to do? But I think I need to. And then when I realized, hey, but I can take the carried interest of the venture fund and use it to fund a lab. You know, we'll just associate the carried interest of that fund to an open source research lab. Like it's an idea every single venture fund out there should do. I don't know why they don't do it. It's like completely sensible to have some of your carried interest some of your proceeds go to fund an open source research lab. I think that idea will catch on, but we're one of the first to do that. Then when I did that, then all of a sudden it dawned on me, wait a minute, 
every single one of the companies we're investing in who depend on open source should be giving some of their future value to the open source community. Oh, that, and so that, that was the start of that idea. It was like a little epiphany, a light bulb went off. Wait a minute, if we could actually do that and set up a mechanism for them to send equity to open source, okay, how are we gonna do that? That's what started the ball rolling was that revelation of that could work. And then I called a couple of friends. I called one of the startup companies I've been working with. I said, hey, would you do this? Would you give some of your equity to open source generally? They said, yeah, actually, that'd be really helpful. I want to show that I value open source, but I can't hire an open source developer. I don't have any money to do that. I'd absolutely give some of my equity to an open source company or to an open source community. How would I do that? Because I can't put a thousand people on my cap table, but what do I do? So that's where the idea of FaroSS came from. And then we said, okay, well, let's start this process. And the only trouble is, I didn't have enough money to really push it. If I had $5 million, I could just do it. If I could just say, here's $5 million to build for OSS, I know we could do something. So we had to go, okay, we'll do it the old-fashioned way, which is the way that NumPy and SciPy got started. We'll just start. And then we'll you know, slowly grow and, and solve the problems as they come and gather more people around us to build it. So that was a very exciting day. I actually remember I told my wife, you know, the problem I've been searching on for 20 years, I finally figured it out. I've been trying to figure out 20 years how to make this work. And I finally figured out. And I had to go start several companies and start a venture fund and get involved in, in finance and cap tables to really pull it off. But that got me excited. Now, I also said, but we're at the base of Mount Everest, right? Like, all we got to do is climb to the top of this mountain and we're there. And so, but at least I know where to climb. So, you know, let's not be, let's be realistic about this. I realize there's work. What's been super exciting for me this year, because uh, I was in 2018, while I was also trying to start a bunch of other stuff. But this year, kind of working with Russ, who I've known before, and Cam, who started working with me at Open Teams, kind of talked to them about the idea and they got excited. And they were willing to basically dive in and say, well, great, if you'll kind of help us, we'll take this on. And that's been thrilling. It's been amazing. And they've been they've done a great job just sort of reifying the program, starting to discuss so we can have conversations like this. And we can start to solve some of those real, real problems. And they're real. The dependency chain. What I would tell you, Richard, is the key is getting everybody involved. Again, if projects actually put their dependency chain, if all we're doing is getting the top level dependencies from companies and every project has a dependency plus value of those projects, that's the tree. Then we can just do the calculation. It just flows all the way through. And now the value of a company can project with those same coefficients all the way through to the value of a project. So you basically have a company and its value is spread to all the values of the projects. You have a bunch of those, have a thousand of those that each add incrementally to the value of a project. Invert the matrix, every project now has a linear dependency on companies that effectively you created an index fund out of every project. This is so fascinating, Travis and, and Russell. I am also super excited and I'm interested in learning more about how you're building the relationships with these companies and what we can do to help. So there is a bit of a, a chicken and egg problem here in the sense that, you know, in order to sort of have companies be aware of what we're trying to do, fair OSS, the sort of principles around what fairness means, which is very much in process, we need to build that brand awareness so that companies want to do business with us. And so if you think like fair trade certification, it's kind of similar. Like we want it to be known as a community of companies, a community of people that sort of philosophically align on the value of a shared infrastructure and contributing back to it. So there is kind of like going out and reaching out to partner communities like Sustain OSS, talking about Fair OSS, helping explain it because it is pretty complex in, in some manner. But at the end of the day, it's just us trying to get equity from companies 
to contribute back to open source projects. So we are trying to build a community, build a brand, and also we're working kind of within the open source space of people who already kind of see the value of open source. So maybe like startups that have built their companies on open source and kind of have a clear idea of, wow, like this helped bootstrap to my product or something along those lines. Like I didn't have to pay for this stuff. So I want to kind of give back. What we find that's fascinating, I didn't expect this actually. When I started FaroSS, the idea of it anyway, and then tried to recruit people to help actually run the company and grow the company, I thought we would have to do a lot more work on establishing the brand in order to get developers to essentially be the teeth behind the brand. Why would a company do this to get the brand? The idea is that, well, if we can get open source contributors to recognize that they want to work only for companies that are participating, people want to hire open source contributors. They're some of the best people to bring into your company. And there's a lot of demand for that. And if those workers won't go to work for a company unless they have this brand, that becomes a real market feedback. It becomes a real opportunity to establish that. Yeah, that's an idea that's been percolating all through the NumFocus conversation. We started PyData, trying to get sponsors for NumFocus, trying to get people to say, hey, come sponsor NumFocus. We found that companies would absolutely sponsor PyData. And the reason they would is because they were trying to hire people. They wanted to hire the best developers. And they would, so they didn't really care so much about the projects. They started to, but they wanted the people. They wanted the great open source community contributors and so they would sponsor for that reason. That's a signal. That's a market signal. Let's do something with that. Actually connect that, build some kind of a brand. That idea has been there for a while. We're using that at FaroSS to build a brand so that companies will want it. But to do that, we got to get the community on board. So get the community on board, contributors on board. We're saying, look, we're going to companies and getting them to sign equity agreements. You want that? And we're having an organization whose whole purpose is to just be a custodian of those agreements to pass any future revenue on back to the project. And so, but what surprised me is when I went to talk to especially early stage companies, so many of them were just, they're eager to show they participate. They're eager to show they give back. And so they've been willing to do it. They've been willing to sign these agreements. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense anyway, because companies already give options. They give equity to employees. Now you're saying, look, you've got a whole thousands of employees, people that made your company possible, who you've not included in your cap table. We're giving you a way to do that. Travis Russell, could you speak to like, why this, why now? Like this is a t- time of like economic contraction. Like why is this important? What, why have you been seeing like, you know, traction during, you know, what can be difficult times for a lot of companies? One of the challenges of a company that I've experienced is it takes a lot to build an open source project. In the current climate, in order to actually build capital or build money or make a way for yourself, you also have to build a company in order for that to work, right? That's effectively what the best practice today is. Go make an open source project, then get somebody or connect with somebody who's going to help you build a company that that you're going to invest in to build something else. So you basically have to do it twice. You have to do something difficult twice in order to make a progress. I don't believe that's entirely necessary. What we're trying to do is create mechanisms and institutions and infrastructure so that just by creating something amazing that people use, there's a natural flow from the value that implicitly creates in other companies back to the project to sustain it. Can you give an example of a project that you feel does that well, that doesn't have to go through and do it twice, essentially? I don't know of one yet today. (laughs) That's the problem. I guess I think the Linux Foundation has helped say Linux, right? Where Linux Foundation helped, I think there's more to do and potentially creating a foundation that could channel business partnerships 
to Linux and some of the infrastructure projects has helped. It provided jobs for open source contributors. They provided you know, some places for companies to fund through the donation mechanism and through, the, through that approach. I don't know of many. Honestly, I'm puzzled. Over the past 20 years, you know, I started SciPy. I started NumPy just with a desire to, it felt like the right thing to do. And I felt like, oh, there's, I'm really in a position to do it. Nobody else is. And I just wanted to help. And it's been amazing to see the use. It's been amazing. I mean, I've had the chance to work at companies large and small, go in and see that's used to do X and realize it's added billions of dollars of value to a lot of work for the world. And yet at the same time, NumPy struggled to have enough funding to maintain itself, keep going. And so that's been frustrating. I've also had a chance to start companies, build companies, and now invest in companies and see what it takes to go from nothing to a functioning company. And it's hard too. Basically, and today you have to do it, you have to do it twice. I have a friend actually who's done this, that's called, let's say Matt Rockland built a company called Coiled after he worked at Anaconda where we paid him to develop Dask. So we pay him to develop Dask and that's great. He's able to, you know, that was one thing I thought we were doing well was at least paying people to work on open source that was then community driven. Dask, then he could start a company from that because of the popularity of Dask, but he had to also go and start a company in order to continue sustaining and getting support for, for Dask. So I don't know that it's being done well right now. I think that's one of the challenges. And I hope that by our efforts, we'll contribute to making the world a little better. I think there's lots of ways to do it. I don't think we're the only one. I think in fact, what we're trying to do is create a pattern and create examples and create approaches that we hope will work. That's our hope. You know, what I have seen in terms of investment around open source startups is that they start with a, a commitment towards open source. And, and once investment happens, there's a pivot. And it's actually quite sad, I think, because there's a pivot in ideals, not just like technology. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could speak more to how this type of sustainability is shifting that model of these investments. I would love to speak to that. I would love to speak to that. If you don't mind, I, I spoke to the founder of SaltStack that just got acquired by VMware, right? And I spoke to him about his view and it was amazing how much it matched mine in the sense that he was really, he recognized that open source is a, you build something of value and you use it. The way you need to make money is to build something that uses it, but isn't the open source. So a lot of people have this open core idea, make something open source, then you build something on top. That rarely works very well in my mind. My view on that is it doesn't work very well because you end up with two messages and those messages are conflicting. On the one, you're here's this thing everybody can use and the other, here's this thing I'm selling. Those work really well if the thing you're selling is just a separate thing something else you built that's a complimentary product that's maybe in demand because of the thing that's free. And he had the same experience, but it's really difficult. Everybody I've talked to in this industry, it's really difficult because you're effectively doing it twice. On the other hand, especially now after a couple of years of running a venture fund and having the opportunity to invest in 12 companies, our focus is investing in companies that do something, but need open source to do it more efficiently. We've been able to help companies go faster, better, stronger. There's a lot of folks out there with great ideas to make the world better but they need technology and go in and help them recognize they don't have to build it all. They can actually borrow from and use open source. Let's connect those dots. So I think there's a big missing gap. And maybe it's because it's hard to see all the sides and I don't see all the sides, but I feel like I've had a chance to be involved in lots of, especially in the financial world, been on a mutual fund board. I've talked to hedge funds. I've talked to investment banks, that whole financial space. I've had a chance to understand a lot what's going on there. And it's amazing how much money is there. There's $60 trillion or more of investment capital. There are people out there with money. It's, it's people's pension funds. It's their 401ks. It's 
there's a lot of money trying to be managed and they're looking for what's called alpha. They're looking for how to make that money grow. So that's a huge amount of money. On the other hand, over the past 20 years, the innovation in technology in particular, the innovation is happening in open source communities. And yet there's a big gap between them. We've only seen a couple of playbooks work. One playbook that's very active in the VC world right now is that playbook of start an open source project, get it successful, and there's questions about what successful means in that case, and then start a company that monetizes it. I'm actually not a big fan of that word monetize the open source, to be honest. I think it, it underscores some of the same difficulties you're alluding to. It's not you're monetizing open source. You're empowering, you're sustaining open source by selling and connecting the economic value to the functional value that's there. So I, I feel like we need a, some new vocabulary at times, but that's what we're trying to do is establish a design a pattern that will work because it aligns with incentives. It aligns with what people are willing to do and naturally will do and then helps people. There'll still be challenges. I'm not naive. Every new thing comes up with a whole set of new challenges. So I like to work on things I know will work. When I started SciPy, for example, I thought, here's a great language, Python. It's easy. It's accessible by domain experts. That's what I was, a scientist, basically. It was accessible to me, but I didn't have libraries. Okay, well, let's start a project where we just start making libraries. So this accessible language becomes more powerful. It took 20 years to get a 1.0 out the door and to get a nature publication, but it happened. I think Barrow won't take 20 years. But I think it'll take five to 10 to get to the point where we have investment capital able to invest in open source. Travis, Russell, it's really interesting hearing about this project. I see a lot of hope for the space. I really want to be engaged. I really like what you're saying. I, I wish I could talk to you forever, but we are running out of time. This podcast is in fact in the temporal zone and therefore has to follow certain rules. One of the questions I have before we move on to the spotlight is where can people learn about Fair OSS and follow you on this journey and invest there, you know, join in, where can they do that? Absolutely. I would go to uh, faiross.org to find out some general information. We have a community, discourse community, community.faiross.org. So please, it's very much getting started, but go there, ask questions. And we also have a Discord that I can provide you all at Sustain OSS to have people sign up and kind of just in more real time, ask us questions. And we will put those in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. Super excited about that. Now's the time where we actually give back part of our time and our equity to things that have helped us out in the past. This is the spotlight section of the show. So I'm going to go forth and ask Justin, because he's the one looking the most away. Justin, what is your spotlight today? First of all, I just want to say thanks to Russell and Travis for coming on. This was a very interesting and fascinating discussion. My spotlight is Curry Fence. It extends Envoy proxy to protect all forms of web traffic. A buddy of mine is an advisor there, and he showed it to me. I thought it was really cool coming from the CDN space. Thank you. Alyssa? My spotlight is a, a program that's coming from Pixelate Earth. Pixelate Earth is an effort to create a multi-source 3D map of the globe, one image at a time. So it's open data and crowdsource created. And they have just launched an ambassador program. And it's particularly interested in not only like geographic diversity so that we can create this 3D map of the world, but also perspective and racial, economic, you know, social diversity, because the 3D world that we're going to map, it matters like who's creating it. So this is all open data. This is all, you know, built on open source software. And I encourage people to like, look at the ambassador program and, and sign up and you get a GoPro 360 camera. So 
I'm there. Cool. Thank you. Eric. Yeah. If you've listened lately, I'm really big into 3D printing now. And one of the really cool projects out there that is a Python project is called Octoprint. The Octoprint is a server that you install on a Raspberry Pi and it will control your printers for you. It's a remarkable piece of software, completely open source. It's led by a person named Gina. I can't pronounce her last name, but she does a video every time there's a major release and she talks about the frustrations of maintaining an open source project. And it's fascinating to watch this thing grow. But for hobbyists like me who get so much joy out of this, I personally want to thank her and draw attention to that project. So it's octoprint.org. Awesome. Thank you so much. My spotlight is actually a Michael Oliphant, who has the same last name as Travis. And he was one of the first researchers I studied hard when I was learning code. When I was learning Python, I was really focusing on this paper from, I think, 98, which was called The Dilemma of Saussurian Communications from 96. And I wrote a little Python script that would play language games with agents based on sort of von Neumann machines. And that's when I first started using Python. So... He's a language evolution, you know, academic, so not code related, but I couldn't help but throw that out because it's just like, when I saw your name, I'm like, oh, I, I know this name very well. I wrote a whole paper on this. It got published. Cool. All right. Russell, what's your spotlight? Yes. Yeah, so I think mine is a little bit more well-known. Mine is the Conda project, the package manager for Python. And I think I'm highlighting that because it had a personal impact when I first started getting into data science in 2017 to try and kind of move away from the Excel world that I had been living in. A boot camp I had been taking actually had me download Conda as like sort of the first step. And it just sort of simplified so much of the don't worry about the infrastructure and setup and just focus on the coursework. And so without that, I probably wouldn't have had awareness of Anaconda, ever gone to work for him or met Travis and had this fair OSS opportunity. Awesome. Love it. Thank you. Travis? Yeah, there's so many to choose from. I decided to talk about Matplotlib. Matplotlib as a it was a significant impact on the growth of Python for Science. It was it's a plotting tool and it allows you to it's accessible plotting. So a domain expert or a scientist engineer can quickly plot and get publication quality plots from their Python prompt. Started by the late John Hunter, dear friend of mine who unfortunately passed away in 2012. But it's his legacy continues in Matplotlib, which has many users, and Thomas Caswell, Michael Dropboom, and a whole cast of characters maintain it. It's a great package, a real key reason Python became dominant in science. Love it. I use both of those all the time, Conda and Matplotlib. So thank you so much for bringing them up. And thank you so much for being on this podcast. It was a real pleasure and privilege and some other P word to make three. Thank you. It was great. And I hope Pharaoh's S goes well and that our listeners get involved. Take care. 